Who were the men known as the Cuban Five, and what had their mission been in the United States? How likely is it that they were denied a fair trial 16 years ago? What political incentive was there for the United States to undermine justice for the Five? What conditions did the Five have to endure in prison? How did they survive their ordeal? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we confront the circumstances and backgrounds of the Cuban Five, their current situation, and the prospects for justice in the future with a representative of the National Committee to Free the Five and with one of the Five, René González. On today's program, when fighting terrorism is a crime, the story of the Cuban Five. Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 3rd, 2014. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major stories shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. Our show is also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. If the U.S. strong health care system, which is apparently far superior to hazmat suits, is so effective at containment, what explains the funeral home preparations again? If U.S. containment procedures are so superb and the virus is no more contagious than before, what difference does it make whether the case is in Dallas, Texas or Sierra Leone? To be sure, maybe the answers to these questions are simple – and it's just about corrupt money and the like. However, the corrupted money explanation isn't very plausible, at least on its own either, for the very simple and extremely disturbing reason that the Funeral Home Preparations article was first published on 9-29 at 3.36 p.m. PST, a day before the Dallas case was confirmed positive. If the rejoinder is that well, people thought the Dallas case might turn out positive. The reply must be that there were several other cases in places like Sacramento and New York that might have turned out positive, but resulted in neither funeral home preparations nor a rash of CDC Ebola prevention tips. Wash those hands since they're running low on hazmat suits. That comes from the article, Ebola Outbreak, the Latest U.S. Government Lies, the Risk of Airborne Contagion, by Professor Jason Kistner, posted October 1st. The Washington Post would report in an article titled, Hong Kong Erupts Even as China Tightens Screws on Civil Society, that, quote, Chinese leaders, unnerved by protests elsewhere this year, have been steadily tightening controls over civic organizations on the mainland suspected of carrying out the work of foreign powers. 
The campaign aims to insulate China from subversive Western ideas such as democracy and freedom of expression and from the influence specifically of U.S. groups that may be trying to promote those values here, experts say. That campaign is long-standing, but it has been prosecuted with renewed vigor under President Xi Jinping, especially after the overthrow of Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych following months of street demonstrations in Kiev that were viewed here as explicitly backed by the West, unquote. The very concept of the United States promoting democracy is scandalous when considering it is embroiled in an invasive global surveillance scandal guilty of persecuting one unpopular war after another around the planet against the will of its own people and based on verifiable lies, and brutalizing and abusing its own citizens at home with militarized police cracking down on civilians in towns like Ferguson, Missouri, making China's police actions against Occupy Central protesters pale in comparison. Promoting democracy is clearly cover for simply expanding its hegemonic agenda far beyond its borders and at the expense of national sovereignty for all subjected to it, including Americans themselves. That's from the article, U.S. now admits it is funding Occupy Central in Hong Kong, by Tony Cartolucci, posted October 1st, originally appearing at Land Destroyer Report. Perhaps most challenging to the mainstream assumption that Ebola can only be spread through physical contact with a person who is showing symptoms of infection is the following explanation by two national experts on infectious disease transmission, both professors in the School of Public Health, Division of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences at the University of Illinois at Chicago, quote, being at first skeptical that Ebola virus could be an aerosol transmissible disease, we are now persuaded by a review of experimental and epidemiologic data that this might be an important feature of disease transmission, particularly in healthcare settings. Unquote. In other words, these two infectious disease experts believe that Ebola is already, in its current form, transmissible via aerosols. They therefore urge all doctors and nurses working with Ebola patients to wear respirators. If they're right, the government's current approach toward Ebola is all wrong. That's from the article, Top Doctors, Ebola May Become Airborne and May Already Be Transmissible via Aerosols by Washington's blog, posted October 2nd. You have heard of the no-fly list, right? Well, now the Tories are pledging that if they win the next election in the UK, they will establish a list of extremists that will have to have their social media posts, quote, approved and advanced by the police, unquote, before they post them. There are also plans to ban extremists from broadcasting and speaking at public events. The stated goal of these proposals is to crack down on terrorism, but in the process, the civil liberties of the British people are going to be flushed down the toilet. And the American people need to pay close attention to what is going on in the UK, because whatever police state measures are implemented over there usually also get implemented over here eventually. That is from the article Orwellian Nightmare in the UK, 
a no-social-media list for extremists and potential terrorists by Michael Snyder, posted October 1st, originally appearing at End of the American Dream. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. This week on the Global Research News Hour, I've got a special guest host. Uh, her name is Leslie Hughes. Uh, she is a a veteran broadcaster and print journalist and is often can regularly be seen on the back page of Canadian Dimension magazine and uh, she's going to be uh, conducting a couple of interviews for us uh, this week Leslie Hughes welcome to the Global Research News Hour thank you michael <laughs> you want to fill out your cv a little bit for uh, those of our listeners who may not be too too familiar with you oh you know just another lefty soldiering on um and uh, keeping a very close eye on Cuba, of course. I'm, I'm believing that our magazine is going to do a future issue on the future of Cuba, which should be a very rich and exciting addition indeed, and hoping to interview the Castro brothers for that interview. So use whatever personal influence you have, Michael, would you, <laughs> with, with that office to get me in there? Yeah, well, I will do my best for sure. Um in the meantime, the case of the Cuban Five, of yes. course, it's very important to keep that alive, and and I think rather difficult to keep it alive. And I know that there's all kinds of activism going on behind the scenes, and that nobody is giving up after 16 years. Nobody is, appears to be giving up. Uh, and more information, of course, is always coming out about what really happened. Isn't it interesting how that happens? Hmm? Yes. Stuff we couldn't get our hands on at the time, but then it gradually comes to the surface. So that that is a very worthwhile thing to do, is monitoring uh, Cuba, the Cuban Five, and, of course, uh, Cuban-Canadian relations. Interesting. And uh, you've got two guests uh, lined up, right? We do. Uh, Gloria Lariva, um, who is uh, a, a pioneer of activism on behalf of the Cuban Five. And we're going to also be speaking to one of the Cuban Five who was actually freed uh, over a long period of time and is now living in Cuba and doing international work, sharing his experience and explaining the situation to people. And it is uh, René Gonzalez. Okay. Well, uh, Leslie, it's, it's great to have you with us. And uh, we look forward to uh, hearing those interviews. And so we're just going to, as we say here at the host station CKUW, we'll be passing the mic over to you. It's now been 16 years since five Cuban men were arrested and detained on charges of espionage. The five had been sent to the USA to monitor groups who were plotting and organizing terrorist attacks against Cuba. There have been widespread accusations that the five were denied the right to a fair trial. Numerous appeals have been filed. However, the verdict has yet to be overturned. To tell us more about the circumstances behind the case, the current situation, and the prospects for justice, we're joined on the phone by Gloria Lariva, a representative of the National Committee to Free the Five, the first organization 
that uh, was formed to assist the Cuban Five in their struggle. She's based in San Francisco, California. Hello, Gloria. Hello, how are you, Leslie? Good, thank you. Thank you. Would you just give us a quick overview of the Cuban Five for people who need reminding? Yes, um, as you said, the five men came into Miami in the late in the early 1990s to infiltrate and monitor terrorist organizations of um, Cuban exile extremists that have operated in Miami against Cuba, carrying out attacks for many, many years. So the Cuban Five were thwarting those attacks, saving lives of not only Cuban people, but anybody who might be a victim of that terrorist uh, plot. They were carrying out these actions for a number of years, and the FBI arrested them on September 12, 1998. Instead of arresting the terrorists, they arrested the men who were fighting the terrorists in a peaceful manner, by the way, and they've been in prison ever since. The men were charged not with espionage, actually, but with espionage conspiracy. And conspiracy is a favorite tool of prosecutors uh, when they want to charge someone who would not even have committed a crime. The government admitted that there was no evidence of any intelligence gathering by the Cuban Five, but they said at some point in the future they were planning to. It was a huge net they threw over them. What kind of terrorist activities were the Five guarding against? When we think about terrorism, uh, we rarely think about terrorism in Cuba. What sorts of things were happening that, that impacted Cubans? Yes, well, from the very first weeks of the Cuban Revolution, which took place, the triumph, on January 1st, 1959, there were there have been hundreds and hundreds of attacks against Cuba, whether it was bombings, assassinations, uh, biological warfare. But in particular, what has taken place in Miami against Cuba is boats that have launched with in, you know, boatloads of weapons going to the island, strafing the island with uh, automatic weapon fire or actual bombings. Cuban diplomats in other countries have been murdered by bombs that came in through the mail. Um, in Miami, there were hundreds, literally, of bombings that took place in the 1970s and 80s and even into the 90s, <clears throat> targeting uh, travel agencies, anybody that had anything to do with Cuba. Uh, and therefore, it was quite dangerous even to be in Miami. These groups are extremely dangerous. Now, the Cuban Five were infiltrated into a number of these groups, and some of the things that they prevented was one boatload of weapons was going to go to Cuba to carry out attacks, armed attacks on people, and the Cuban Five actually reported it to the FBI. But the FBI did not consider that uh, a good act of faith. They then were able to say, hmm, these men that reported to us something that was protecting Cuba, uh, the FBI, that helped the FBI become suspicious of certain Cuban Five members, which is really quite diabolical to think that the FBI not only arrested the men who were saving lives, but actually, when you look at the history of Miami, there are, to this very day, a number of terrorist organizations and individuals who are notoriously carrying out plots right now, even in April and May, there was news from Cuba that four men uh, living in Miami came into Cuba to carry out armed attacks, as they have admitted. 
and they named several men in Miami notorious terrorists, uh, two names for one that I'll mention, Santiago Alvarez and Osvaldo Mitad, who have been convicted before. And these men in Cuba who were apprehended said that they were getting the money and the weapons and the plots from these men in Miami. So actually, the National Committee to Free the Cuban Five filed a Freedom of Information Act request of the State Department, the FBI, and the CIA, and they have blocked any kind of information about what the government knows of these groups in Miami. So the Cuban Five's mission way back in the 90s is still an essential thing that we need today, and yet the five men are in prison. However, two have returned to Cuba after completing their sentences. Well, now, specifically, what does your work constitute? What is your current mission? What preoccupies you now? Well, the, the, the mission has been the same in all these more than 13 years. <clears throat> we formed right after they were convicted, which was in 2001, the Cuban Five. And the mission has been to reach out everywhere we can throughout the United States, uh, where the case took place, where the men are in prison, to let the American people know that these men were actually heroes saving lives and that they gave up their personal well-being to come into the U.S. to protect their country and other people, too. So we think that our theme has been that we believe that when the American people learn about the five, they will demand their freedom, and that has been the case ever since. We have reached many, many, many thousands of people who, when they hear the case, overwhelmingly are shocked, surprised, and angry that these men are in prison. The other part is uh, reaching to the media. We've had quite a lot of work in that over the years. Uh, forums, rallies, protests, emergency alerts when the five were being mistreated or put into isolation, unwarranted isolation uh, in the prisons, uh, helping with the lawyers. And what we've done, uh, very important for the last several years, is research on the matter of what was discovered several years after the conviction of the Cuban Five, that in Miami, during the trial of the Cuban Five, quite a number of Miami journalists on TV, radio, and newspaper were receiving U.S. government money secretly, working for the U.S. propaganda stations, radio and TV Marti, and nobody in the defense or even the court was aware that the same journalists who received that government money were the same ones also vilifying the five in the media. It was a hysteria that they were creating. That should be grounds alone. Uh, that's a plenty of grounds to overturn their conviction. Have you got anywhere with those freedom of information requests? Have you got the goods here that you need to prove that? Oh, yes. Uh, we have in, in one Freedom of Information Act request alone, along with the help of other institutions like the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund, Liberation Newspaper, we were able to get 2,000 pages of contracts between the government and these journalists, where one even said in his uh, biography, I am an employee of the U.S. government. So if you know that the government uh, is carrying out all kinds of action, a blockade against Cuba, and it's whose policy is basically to try to overthrow the revolution, then you will reflect that policy by your media coverage against Cuba and the men who were defending Cuba, the Cuban Five. The, the research we have 
uncovered in all these years about the U.S. journalists on the government payroll is part of their habeas corpus appeals, which are active right now. And what is needed is for this information not only to be presented in the court, which it has, but to reach the public, not only American, but around the world, to show what a travesty the trial was. Are you getting anywhere, Gloria, are you getting anywhere in the mainstream media? Well, yes. You know, it's funny because in the first years, we couldn't get a line of news in the papers, except in Miami where they were being vilified. But we, uh, three years after they were convicted, we raised $50,000, published a full-page ad for one day in the New York Times. And then the news started to come through with the actions around the world, with our persistence, and as well, in 2005 August, a really stunning development the defense attorneys, appeal attorneys, won the overturning of all their convictions. This is something that uh, would have freed them quite a number of years ago. The three-judge panel of Atlanta's Court of Appeals ruled that the Miami venue of the trial was virtually impossible for the five to get a free, ter- a fair trial, and other things to government misconduct quite a number of issues. They called it a perfect storm, and they ordered a new trial for the Cuban Five within 18 months, or to free them. And instead, unfortunately, the government appealed and the full panel of 12 judges in the same court, which is, by the way, the most conservative court in the United States, they upheld the conviction and said that Miami was fine. But as I said, after that uh, defeat for the five, came this information about the journalists who received millions of dollars to basically carry out a hysteria in the media against the Cuban Five. I mean, amazing news coverage that you wouldn't, you would never think that it could be tolerated, but it has been in Miami. And unfortunately, the appeals right now are being heard by the same judge who conducted the trial. Now, what what would constitute justice for the five at this point? You've told us that uh, two have been effectively freed and three are still in prison in the States. Yes. One man, Antonio Guerrero, has three more years left in his sentence. Uh, The next one is Ramon Labañino, who has a 30-year sentence and wouldn't get out for another uh, about 12 more years, which is so outrageous. And then Gerardo Hernandez, this is the most egregious case. He has a double life sentence. And it's involving um, a case from 1996 when Cuba shot down two planes of a terrorist organization, Brothers to the Rescue, which was persistently invading Cuban airspace and which Cuba warned the U.S. government to stop those flights. The U.S. didn't. Uh, the Cuba warned that uh, organization. The planes took off, invaded Cuban airspace. Cuba shot down the planes. Four pilots were killed. And two and a half years later, Gerardo Hernandez was charged with murder conspiracy. He had no role in the shootdown. The shootdown was an defen- act of defense by Cuba. But nonetheless, the lawyers uh, pointed out in trial and since then in the appeals that Gerardo had no knowledge of the plan of Cuba to defend its airspace and shoot down the planes. It was a matter of, you know, seconds that the planes came into Cuban airspace. And therefore, this was completely a political charge against the men 
And that is why Gerardo has a double life sentence. We are all around the world, in Cuba, and all the groups, there are more than 400 organizations around the world, are fighting for him to get out of prison. Because in U.S. prison, in the justice system here, if you have a life sentence in federal prison, you do not get out. There is no parole. Do you have any reason to feel optimistic about this? You're saying certainly that there's a lot of international activity and the case seems to be maintaining something of a profile. But what what is encouraging you to continue? Well, as long as the people are fighting for the Cuban Five's freedom, and that will always happen, as long as there's struggle, there is always hope. And in fact, there have been uh, progressive steps in this case notwithstanding the uh, overturning of the convictions that were then reinstated. Later in 2009, two of the five, Ramon and Antonio, who had life sentences and would have been in the same situation as Gerardo, their sentences were reduced to the 30 years and the 20-plus years. And that means that they will get out at some point. Of course, we want them out sooner than their sentence. Uh, So there has been... Uh, progress because of the campaign for them. As a matter of fact, when the two were resentenced and received a reduction, the prosecutor herself, Carolyn Heck Miller, said in the courtroom, she said, Your Honor, we agree with the defense on a reduction of sentence because it will help calm the waters, the turbulent waters that are swirling around this case worldwide. It's the government's concern of how bad the government looks uh, how outrageous it looks for men who are fighting terrorism to be in prison, and especially when you know that the terrorists in Miami are running free. One of those terrorists in Miami, you asked about them before, Luis Posada Carriles, is the one notorious for having uh, been the mastermind before of the bombing of a Cuban airliner in 1976, in which 73 Cubans and other people died after suffering a horrible burning death when bombs were exploded on that plane. Luis Posada Carriles, after years of hiding in Central America and carrying out other attacks against Cuba, ended up in Miami in 2005 while the Cubans are in prison. And to this day, Luis Posada Carriles, despite worldwide demand that he be extradited to Venezuela where he planned the bombing, is living in Miami. He received the keys to the cities uh, from several uh, townships of Miami. Do do you know if there's anything significant happening behind the scenes, the so-called closed-door negotiations between Cuba and the U.S. to secure the freedom of these people? Well, the fact that they would be behind the scenes means we wouldn't know, but it's a very good question. And it's it's highly likely that that could be happening. Um, William Leo Grand and Peter Kornblue are two academics who have written about this recently because of previous historical prisoner exchange that have taken place. For example, when Puerto Rican political prisoners were released by President Clinton and then uh, uh, other prisoners from Cuba were released as well. So that has happened in the past. And in addition, there is an American in Cuban prison, his name is Alan Gross. He's gotten quite a lot of coverage in the U.S. because he was entering Cuba in 2009 with a number of high technology equipment 
that was intended to create part of this these plots against Cuba to create uh, an underground secret communications for opposition against the government. And he was carrying out what he knew to be illegal acts. He was caught. He was tried in Cuba and sentenced to 15 years. He's about in his mid-60s, and his wife and family are demanding that he be freed from Cuban prison. But in fact, um, there is also a demand by Cuba that or not a demand, but a call for a humanitarian exchange between the remaining Cuban five members in prison and Alan Gross. Cuba has offered this uh, to discuss this numerous times, and the Obama administration's answer is no. No, there will be no exchange. However, one cannot rule out the possibility that that is, in fact, you know, happening, that there may be discussion behind the scenes. Of course, we would be all for that kind of solution, uh, but our focus is on showing the injustice of the Cuban Five's imprisonment and calling for their immediate freedom regardless, regardless of any other consideration. We want them free. Gerardo Hernandez is in a maximum security prison in Victorville, California, near L.A., Los Angeles. He has suffered so much from that. You know, the men, to be in prison for years means that your health deteriorates. You're denied the right to see your family. You're denied the right to be home in Cuba. Gerardo Hernandez has been denied his wife's comfort. She has been denied entry into the United States all these 16 years. The U.S. government is trying to punish him extra, and her as well, by keeping her from seeing him. And in fact, we know that these kind of tactics by the U.S. government against the Cuban Five have been meant to try to pressure them. Uh, the FBI even recently has uh, approached the Cuban Five and said, you know, if you collaborate with us, if you give in, if you say you're guilty, then we'll consider letting you go. And that's not what these men are about. They have principles, their mission was honorable, and they refuse to collaborate with the U.S. government against themselves and their people. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Gloria, is it possible that Obama himself could intervene here? President Obama, as president, has the absolute right and authority to declare clemency or pardon of any prisoner. And we say this, instead of pardoning the turkey that the president traditionally does on Thanksgiving, do a real pardon. Pardon the Cuban Five. These men, the government fully well knows, were in Miami to stop terrorism. And it's highly hypocritical of the U.S. to be declaring that they're carrying out a war of, against terrorism in the Middle East when they have these men in prison. Obama does have the power, and one of the themes is, Obama, yes, you can free the Cuban Five. There have been you know, massive tweeting days, there's been all kinds of activity calling on Obama to do this. As a matter of fact, uh, President Obama will be in San Francisco very soon, and we will be raising a banner saying, Obama, free the Cuban Five now. Now, 
there are so many prominent people supporting the Cuban Five, from Bishop Tutu to former President Jimmy Carter. He has called for their release, uh, talked about the injustice of the trial. Many, many other people, actors, uh, musicians, dozens of parliamentarians from Ireland to Mexico Senate to the British Parliament, uh, you name it. There are so many people supporting them. You didn't actually mention Canada there. Would you? Yes, I know. As a ma- I'm sorry. Um, the thing about Canada is that there has it, Canada is one of the countries that has been really stellar in the support for the Cuban Five in every province from east to west. And in fact, I've been to Canada to a few cities, uh, whether Vancouver, Toronto, um, or Montreal, to speak at events that Canadians have organized. And one of the issues, too, about Canada is that an Italian and, uh, and Canadian resident, Fabio Di Chelmo, was murdered by one of the terrorist bombings, one of Luis Posada Carriles' bombings, on September 4th, 1997. He was a victim of anti-Cuba terrorism. And it's really astounding that the Canadian government has not intervened on behalf of the Cuban Five because of one of its own people. Fabio Di Chelmo. So we do thank Canada for all its help, and and the Canadian groups have helped us enormously uh, in this cause because everybody knows in the world that the the weight of struggle must be in the United States where the men are. Just just one last question for you, Gloria, and it involves a flight of fancy, I suppose. Can you imagine if the situation were reversed? And what kind of response the United States might muster if it were exposed to comparable attacks of which they are uh, accusing Cuba? Can you even imagine? Well, I think that the the American people are not even aware until 9-11-2001 of what terrorism actually is. and I think 9-11 brought that home to people, but it's also been a very, a very uh, lot of ignorance of the people to understand what the U.S. government, our own government, with U.S. tax dollars has done to the Cuban people. And yet I think the people believe in justice and democracy. Sometimes I just think they don't know what it is because we're lied to so much by the media and because the case of the five has been so hidden. So on behalf of the American people, I think once the people know and have known, they support the Cuban Five, but the U.S. government um, is actually carrying out these attacks by financing the groups, giving them a green light in Miami. And, of course, we know this. Um, even though the Five, Gerardo, was falsely accused and convicted of the plane shootdown, Uh, You ask anybody who has followed this case, and they will tell you the U.S. would never tolerate a plane invading Cuban airspace, I mean, invading United States territory over and over, much less one time. Um, The U.S. would never tolerate that. But in fact, the, 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 the question is interesting because it would be different if the U.S. were really against terrorism. But, you know, speaking personally, I believe that the U.S. is carrying out a war of terrorism in the Middle East, and they're carrying out a war of terror against Cuba because those bombs have been paid for by U.S. tax dollars. 
Uh, some of those organizations get money uh, that helps them keep going. Luis Posada Carriles is getting shelter in Miami. And therefore, the U.S. is playing an extremely hypocritical role in this matter. And Gloria, what do you think will happen next? Well, all we can know is that we will keep fighting along with all the other organizations in the U.S. and the world for the Cuban Five. We have to keep upping the ante, uh, raising the stakes, uh, becoming more visible, more creative. And in the meantime, um, U.S. policy toward Cuba also has to change to a large degree. We want the blockade ended. We want the end of hostilities to Cuba because the biggest act of terrorism against Cuba is the U.S. blockade. Hundreds of billions of dollars in damages, people suffering, uh, lack of you know lack of certain medicines that they have needed, and therefore the whole issue of the Cuban Five is one of Cuba's right to defend itself. We'll keep on fighting. Uh, we're, we think that the fact that Rene Gonzalez and Fernando Gonzalez in Cuba, free now, they have been a giant boost to the freedom cause of the Cuban Five because now they're traveling throughout their country. They've inspired their people. They're giving great sustenance to the Cuban people in this fight. And they've been traveling throughout Europe, too, um, to bring the, the issue of the Five. As you know, Canada has hosted several of the wives and mothers of the Cuban Five, and they've been a great, they've been great ambassadors for the five men. Gloria, thank you very, very much for your time and for all this information today. Oh, yes, thank you. And if people can, uh, would like to read more about their case, all of that we've spoken about, watch videos, hear interviews of the five and their wives, they can visit freethefive.org, and five is spelled out. It's also fully bilingual. And there's a great little three-minute video that has been made by Cuban youth that tells a story in three minutes in a very creative way. Thank you. Thank you again. We've been speaking just now with Gloria Lariva, a representative of the National Committee to Free the Five, an organization dedicated to assisting the Cuban Five in their struggle for justice. the Cuban Five have been released from prison and are now in Cuba. We're very privileged to have with us Rene Gonzalez. He was the first of the five to be released, and he joins us now from Havana. Hola, Rene. Yes, how are you doing? Hi. How are you? Very... Glad to be here uh, talking to you. Me too. Very glad that you're with us. Tell me, how does it feel to be a free man in Cuba? Well, uh, it's a, first, it's a source of uh, uh, happiness, of course. Uh, I've been longing for my family for uh, years. I, I spent uh, 13 years in prison, plus a year and a half of supervised release. And, of course, all that time you are longing to be together with your family, uh, with your people. 
and at least uh, at last I was able to to come back to Cuba, and uh, it's it's, uh, it's it's marvelous. Uh, now I have an extended family. I'm a uh, grandpa now, which I wasn't <laughs> before. Uh, so I'm enjoying everything here. My family, my my newborn uh, grandson, uh, the Cuban people on the streets, uh, everything here. So uh, I feel great, very happy. And I would say that the only thing that that uh, limits that ha- that sense of happiness is uh, the fact that three of my brothers are still in the U.S. prison. But but everything here is uh, great for me, and I'm I'm excited of being in Cuba and uh, to be again on the society where I, where I grew up. Can you just bring us briefly up to speed on the three who are still in prison? How are they doing? Are you in touch with them? Well, we are in touch with them through their families. Uh, when they call on the phone, and of course, we we have all the news on them we, we receive in here. Uh, they are doing fine under the circumstances. Uh, for us, uh, moral hasn't been a problem. Uh, so, morally speaking, they are they are on very high moral uh, condition, uh, and very high spirits. But of course, they, they they are in prison, which is uh, what what shouldn't be happening. Uh, when it comes to health, well, not some of them have some health issues which uh, come with age. Of course, we were young guys when we were arrested. Uh, the older one was me, and I was uh, 42. And of course, time, some time has its uh, impact. But they are handling their 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 physical conditions well. Well, they are in the best condition that that you can expect uh, under the circumstances. And uh, so far, they are doing fine. Uh, but again, it's, uh, the the main thing here is that they are in prison for a crime they didn't commit, and that's that's enough to for us to 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 the border. Life to, to take him out of there. Now I'm I'm sorry to take take you back to less happy times, but can you just sum up for us the time that you spent uh, spent in prison? What was the most difficult thing for you? Well, I would say that for all of us, the most difficult time is the time of the arrest. That that uncertainty uh, when you are uh, apprehended and Everybody who is uh, aware of the case knows that they use the, the conditions of confinement to break us down, so they put us in solitary confinement. They were really rough on us, and they kept us in the in the hole on punishment uh, conditions for a year and a half in order to break us down and to hinder our capacity to defend ourselves. And those were really hard times. Uh, but, you know, you get adjusted fast, especially... Because uh, when it comes to the moral uh, issue, uh, they behave. The prosecutors behave so badly, and so they were so mean that you know. I believe that we soon uh, realized that we had to 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 keep the moral ground, and that's what we did. And I believe it helped us a lot uh, to to cope with the situation. But. Uh, Needless to say, the first days are really uh, rough. You are alone in solitary confinement without being able to talk, talk to your family or to, to know about them at all. And it's, it's really hard. Uh, for me, especially uh, when I went to court the first time and I saw my family 
and I saw their their attitude, their demeanor. So for me, it was a relief, and I believe that from there on, it, it, it's all about uh, you know finding the, the the human resources that you have inside yourself in order to resist, and as uh, we always say, say to become a better person, to become stronger, and that's what we've done. Of course, you, I'm sure you know this, created a reputation for enduring with particularly good spirit. I hear that you were very cheerful, cheerful into the worst of times. Is that the case? Can you repeat the question, please? I didn't hear it well. Yes, I'm saying that you in particular had a reputation for enduring your imprisonment and your intimidation in very good spirits. How did you do that? Well, I believe everybody's, I suppose everybody's equipped with, with the resources, uh, but it comes to finding them. Uh, I remember the first day that they put me in prison. I mean, I was arrested at about 5 o'clock, and by 9, we, we, were, we already were on the hall. On, on, on solitary confinement, so I, uh, they put me on that cell by myself with nothing in it. So I, right away, I started thinking, well, what can I do here? And I thought of, of my physical condition. So because back at that moment, that that was the only thing that I could do: sing some songs and do some exercise. So I, I lay down on the floor. I, I did some push-ups to see how I was doing. I was really. Uh, but in bad shape, I realized that, and I determined, well, you know what? If they put me here, first thing I had to do is to is to improve my physical condition. So I decided to do that, and uh, that's how it started. And very soon, I I realized that that in order to win, uh, you had to keep uh, to improve on your physical condition, on your uh, spirits, and your intellect. And, so each of us decided on his own way to do it. As you know, Tony is very devoted to to painting, to poetry. I did a lot of exercise. Uh, um, took advantage of the time to to read a lot, to 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 come up to date on some reasons that I, I had postponed because I didn't have the time before. And and Gerardo is very good with his cartoons, so he's. He spends a lot of time doing cartoons and things like that, and so on. You know, each of us decided on his own on how how to employ his uh, his own resources. Uh, but but for the five of us, the most the, the important thing was to get out of jail better in the better way, in better shape, uh, physically, emotionally, and intellectually as as we came uh, came in. And I believe that uh, we've been able to do that. And again, for us, that's the measure of victory because uh, the prosecutors, since the first day, they they made clear to us that they wanted us to to break down and to and to uh, become, you know, frustrated, angry, and uh, you know, we made the decision of not not allowing them to do that. So I believe that's that's the formula, if you can say it. Mm. But of, of course, anybody can have his own way of doing it. Now, Rene, there there is a, a very a, a romantic story as well um, about you. I understand that your accusers uh, played very rough with you and your family, with your wife, and that you, the two of you, had a very young child uh, at the time, and that that the incarceration of 
of of your wife was used to intimidate you. And as I say, there's a romantic story about how you responded to that. Would you mind sharing us sharing that with us? <laughs> well, yes, yes. They, they tried they tried to to make us uh, cooperate uh, with the prosecutors since the beginning. And very soon they 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 realized it was going to be hard, uh, at least on the five of us. So what they did is that uh, when the, the trial was approaching, they <clears throat> they proposed to me a, a plea agreement. And basically, what they uh, uh, told me was that, well, you know, your wife is uh, is not a citizen; she can be deported. So you better cooperate, or otherwise, she we we can take uh, action against her. So I didn't. I didn't agree to cooperate. Of course, I was committed to to my my friends, to my brothers. Uh, I was committed to truth because that's also important in this history. So I decided not to cooperate at all. And then, uh, next thing they do is they take my wife in prison. They put her put her in a in a immigration cell. And uh, somehow they decided that that I should see her. So they 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 took her to. Uh, a building adjacent to the to the um, federal detention center, and then they took me there so I could see her last time. It was about uh, five hours after uh, she had been arrested, and they decided on something that was really mean. Uh, they put her on one of those uh, orange uh, uh, jumpsuits, uh, a very uh, dirty jumpsuit full of uh, uh, stains and whatever. So they took me into that room, and uh, the first thing I see is I see her in front of me, and to the left, uh, a bunch of uh, officers uh, sitting down watching. So, you know, my impulse was, well, I had to give these people a lesson. So I took her by the hand and lifted her hand and made her turn around, and and I I just said to her, wow, you look beautiful in that orange. (laughs) So we started (laughs) laughing in front of those people. And... (laughs) I suppose they didn't like it, but, you know, I believe that was the, the, the right thing to do. And uh, from there on, you know, uh, they we, we couldn't see each other again until I returned to Cuba. <laughs> now, what are you doing these days uh, in terms of working for justice for the Cuban Five? What are you doing now? Well, <clears throat> uh, for me, the priority is to, uh, to, to achieve the return of my, my three brothers. Uh, and it's going to be my priority until they are here. Uh, basically, we are trying to to convey to the U.S. government, uh, who has the solution uh, to this uh, case, uh, the demand from all over the world for the freedom of the five. Because although the case of the five uh, was uh, hidden from the U.S. public, and from the, from the U.S. people's knowledge, there is uh, hundreds of thousands of people all over the world who support the fight, including uh, Amnesty International, the, the Group on Arbitrary Detention of the Human uh, Rights Commission of the United Nations, uh, international organizations of lawyers, parliaments. And uh, what we're trying to do is to, to put together all that potential uh, so they help us demand uh, directly from the President of the United States to put an end to this injustice. And it's a hard job, uh, but it, is, it takes a lot of work. Uh, but I believe that we've been able to, to advance uh, 
a little bit on that. And, and I, we still hope that before, uh, before the end of this uh, presidential term, uh, the U.S. government do the right things and, uh, and, and put an end to this. So that's where we are, where, where we are devoting our uh, efforts uh, towards. And, uh, and it takes a lot of work, but, uh, but I'm happy to do that until my three brothers are back in Cuba. And how can we help you at this distance? Well, as I told you, one of the main uh, purposes have been to to try to mobilize people in the United States. Uh, our trial is is uh, is an interesting story because is uh, some people say is is the longest oral trial in the U.S. history. It was seven months of testimony. The trial well dealt with terrorism, which uh, apparently for the United States government is a big issue. It dealt with uh, the international relations with Cuba and the United States between the two countries. It dealt with an international incident in which uh, four uh, American citizens uh, were dead. Uh, on the witness uh, stand, we had uh, a presidential advisor uh, for Bill Clinton. We had uh, three generals for the defense who went to testify voluntarily. We had an admiral also for the defense went to testify voluntarily. For the prosecutor, we had a general who is now the, the head of the intelligence community in the United States. And uh, the American public wasn't told anything about the trial. Absolutely nothing. And, uh, of course, the reason is that if the American people had been informed on, the, on our trial, the way they are sometimes informed on some meaningless trials, uh, there would have been another cry of, uh, of shame against the prosecutors, and um, even the whole uh, legal system would have been in question. Uh, so our, our main purpose is uh, to find everybody in the United States to, who can help us uh, uh, convey the truth to the American public opinion. And that's, that's what you can do. Uh, and, and I believe that's, that's why this interview... Uh, it's important also because we need the American people to know about the case. Uh, a lot of friends have already have already uh, joined us in the United States. Well, maybe you know that uh, Susan Sarandon uh, is is together with us. Uh, Gerardo's been visited by uh, by a lot of Americans, uh, actors, uh, activists. Uh, Danny Glover is is a, is a frequent visitor to Gerardo. Uh, and so we need to, to convey to the American people the story. Uh, we have uh, now there is a Canadian uh, who made a, wrote a great, great book on the case. He went through the pages of thousands of pages of testimony, and he wrote a book which is uh, he's, uh, touring the United States to, to, to sell, which is called uh, What Lies Across the Water. He's doing a great job uh, through his book so people know about the case. And eventually we hope that... that the American people would know the story, and that's how you can help us, uh, just making people know about the, the Cuban fight. The writer who is touring with his book, I think you mean Stephen Kimber, who is a Canadian. Yeah, that's uh, Stephen Kimber. Yeah, and the, the, the book's uh, title is uh, What Lies Across the Water. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an interesting story because he came here as a tourist to Cuba, and through a, a tour guide, uh, he learned about the Q and five, and he, first he started looking into the case. Uh, 
you know, just out of curiosity. And then he realized that it was it was an interesting case. And what I like about the book is that he, he he's not he, he wasn't a particular friend of Cuba or of the five. He's just uh, he's just a professor of journalism who takes his profession seriously. That's it. And all of a sudden, as he started looking into the evidence, the testimony, and the transcripts of the of the case, uh, he realized uh, how unjust uh, the trial had been. And now he's a real advocate for the five, and I consider him a friend, although I don't even know his political views. But but I respect his integrity as a journalist, uh, something that we need in these uh, in these uh, times, and his honesty when he looked at the sto- at the story. And he's, in my opinion, is the most complete book that has has been ever written about the case. Have the Castros expressed their support to you personally? Have they spoken to you? Yes, yes, I I met him. We have a we had a, a a great meeting. You know, it was it was more a familiar meeting than than, than anything else. Just uh, two Cubans uh, talking about everything, and and it was great. Yes. Well, it was wonderful of you to talk with us today, Renee. We we truly appreciate well, that. Well, thanks for the interview, and again, uh, you are doing a great service to truth and to justice, and I I express to you my gratitude for that. Best of luck to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Rene Gonzalez, the first of the Cuban Five to be released after serving a -a 13-and-a-half-year prison sentence. He spoke recently to special interviewer Leslie Hughes, three of the original Cuban Five, Gerardo Hernandez, Antonio Guerrero, and Ramon Labonino remain behind bars. There are two publications on the Cuban Five listeners may wish to consult for more information. Letters of Love and Hope, the story of the Cuban Five with an introduction by Alice Walker, and the more recent book, What Lies Across the Water, the real story of the Cuban Five by Stephen Kimber, professor of journalism at the University of King's College in Halifax. Extra background on the Cuban Five and how listeners can help can be found at www.freethefive.org and www.thecubanfive.org. Thanks again to this week's Pass the Mic guest interviewer, Leslie Hughes. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.